It was July 1948 that Major General Sherman Miles, who was the chief army of intelligence between 1940 and 1942, he wrote a piece called Pearl Harbor in Retrospect. Pearl Harbor in Retrospect, which he examined why the base at Pearl Harbor was so incredibly ill-prepared for the attack. You understand, of course, Pearl Harbor was the United States military base in Hawaii where it was struck the morning of December 7, 1941 by a surprise attack from the Imperial Japanese Navy, killing over 2,000 soldiers and wounding over 1,000 more. Major General Miles writes in his book, quote, It has since been implied that the reason Hawaii was not on alert was that Washington thought the Japanese would not attack there. That suggestion points up very neatly the crucial issue, for the opposite was true. Washington thought the Japanese would not attack Hawaii largely because it believed Hawaii was alerted and prepared. This picture undoubtedly is what some people call the psychology of peace. The psychology of peace meaning that you are not prepared for the war that is coming. Secretary of War at the time, Henry L. Stimson, remembers, they were under a terrific pressure in the face of a global war, which they felt was probably imminent, yet they were surrounded outside of their offices at almost throughout the country by a spirit of isolationism and disbelief in danger, which now seems incredible, end quote. That's a fascinating assessment, isn't it, when you think about it? What happens when, as General Miles stated, men who are convinced of the prospect of war still allow themselves to live under the illusion of the psychology of peace? Though there's every indication given to leaders and soldiers alike that war is inevitable and that attack is on its way, still the human heart has this tendency to wait to act until it's too late. I say that to you because as we return to the book of 1 Peter and our verse-by-verse exposition of it, of chapter 4, this is actually the assessment of the apostle as well. That though the believer is to spend the entirety of their life in careful preparation for the spiritual war that rages all around them, there still is every indication that over time they're going to begin to live as if they were living in a time of peace. Since they can't see the armies marching upon them, since they can't smell the fires burning or see the enemy banners waving in the air, they wrongly assume that the battle has not yet begun. Because of the invisible nature of spiritual warfare, they're seduced into believing that there's no war at all. Later on in this same chapter, Peter goes on to say it this way, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. 1 Peter 4.12. In other words, when you find yourself bombarded by various and serious attacks of the enemy, don't be surprised that such a thing could happen. Don't become a spiritual Pearl Harbor, if you will. Don't allow yourself to be prepared for war and then caught by surprise when the enemy strikes. Refuse to live as peacetime volunteers falling asleep at your post. The attack is coming, and when it arrives, you'll have to suffer. And suffering in this war is the key point of everything the apostle is going to point us to this morning. Suffering, the idea of suffering for doing what is right, reminds you that there's a war. 
suffering changes everything. Suffering awakens you to the battle at hand. Suffering is making you stand alert and evaluate the enemy and reconsider your battle plan and check your weaponry. Suffering blows the battle cry loud and clear. And so if you've been with us for the first three chapters, Peter's been preparing the Christians of Asia Minor in the first century to suffer well, prepare to suffer for what is coming. Chapter 1, verse 6, he reminds them that they have been distressed by various trials. Chapter 1, verse 13, he charges them to prepare their minds for action. Chapter 2, verse 11, he urges them as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshy lust which wage war against the soul. Over and over again, he's telling them that war is coming. Look, we know this. We know that the church is at war in our culture, right? We understand that. We see it every single day in terms of the way it's embracing the lust of the heart, dishonoring their own bodies, making themselves into God by mutilating themselves to make their bodies match their unfit minds believing the lie and calling the truth error and calling error truth. So in that way, we do understand that there is a war around us. We might not be theologically tempted to believe that women are men and men are women. We may not be theologically tempted to teach children to embrace uh, their particular own sense of gender in contrast to the biology of their God-given body. We're not tempted to agree with that kind of evil that's all around us. But instead, the war that Peter is speaking of here is a battle that rages in the soul to our desire to return to pagan ways. That's the war he's talking about. To return to living lives that rebel against authority, to rebel against holy living, instead of living as they once had lived, which you're going to see today, engulfed in the sins of the flesh, they are now to live completely differently, in a completely different way, in a holy submission to earthly authorities in particular. So regardless of what the flesh might scream for them to do, they are to submit to these authorities over them who are being unreasonable in their demands. We've gone over this. Chapter 2, verse 19 through 20 puts the issue into perfect perspective with just some key verses for this letter. He writes, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there when you sin and you're harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. So the suffering that alerts you to the fact that the war has come is not the suffering that comes as a consequence of your sin. And I want to make this clear. Rather, it's the suffering that alerts you that there is a war when you're suffering that is a consequence of choosing not to sin. That's what he's talking about. It's very, very important that we understand what kind of suffering he's talking about. The believer is at war, for sure. And the war that Peter is addressing is not the result let me say that again. It's not the result of spiritual bombs exploding in your life because you've determined to sin in times of suffering. No, that kind of war that Peter's speaking of comes as a result of your borders being invaded because you've determined in your heart that you would rather experience the great pain and anguish of ridicule and rejection than to ever sin against Christ. This is the war that Peter is preparing for us to fight. The war is Yes, in the culture, the war is in the workplace, the war is in our homes, 
And the reason you know it's war is because it calls you to suffer in each of those circumstances by not sinning against the God who calls you to submit. It is a war because it's a battle for our minds. It's a war because it takes divinely forged weapons to combat it. It's a war because it includes the possibility of suffering in the flesh for the will of God, even when it seems as if the world is trying to crush you. It's a war because there will be hardship, there will be tears and conflict, there will be tyranny, there will be betrayal and sabotage. And so he sets up for us in this very first portion of chapter 4 some very practical, very essential strategies that I think are going to be uniquely designed for each of us, for the Christian, to help not only to win the war on the inside, but to live for the coming victory that awaits us one day. This is a fight. It's a fight every single day of your life, and it takes preparation to win. So how can we prepare for war? How can we prepare for war? Well, let's look at our text together and find out. This morning, if you're taking notes, we're going to look at three strategies that can help you prepare for the coming spiritual war. Three strategies that you must ever be, have before you so that you will not be surprised when the battle for your faith invades your home. And I'm going to give them to you up front real quick. Consider the ultimate warrior. That's the first strategy. Consider the ultimate weapon, that's the second strategy, and consider the ultimate warfare, the third. Consider the ultimate warrior, weapon, and warfare, and we're going to look at those each as we unpack this this morning. So let's first look at the first strategy that can help you prepare for this coming spiritual war. That be, number one, consider the ultimate warrior. That's the first way to prepare yourself. Consider the ultimate warrior, and we're going to see that in the first part of verse 1, when we read, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh. Let's stop right there. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh. So Peter begins his very first strategy saying, therefore, which tells us, of course, that what he's about to assert has already been rooted in what he has spoken of before, and so we have to go back. How far back, you might ask. I was just talking about that with Harry Walls and context. Far enough to understand this new topic, namely that Christ has suffered in the flesh. Now, we've been away from Peter for just a couple of lessons here, so let me attempt to kind of trace some of this theological implications that came from what we studied back three verses back in chapter 3, verses 19 and 22, so that we might have some verses to kind of remember what the context is to this point. So if you go back, starting in verse 17 of chapter 3, Peter again brings up this issue of wartime strategy and suffering for righteousness' sake so that the enemies who revile Christ's name are put to shame. He says in verse 17, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And again, this is the key thought that he's trying to press down into the minds of the readers that when the struggle comes, when the temptation comes to resist authority and it's pressing down on your shoulders, remember that you're at war. Remember that do what is right and godly in a reverential way, even though what you believe is happening to you is unfair and unjust. And the last great example that Peter gives us before this was way back in verse 1 of chapter 3, when he spoke of the Christian wife, you remember our time together, having to submit herself even to her unbelieving husband. Though her flesh might scream for justice, 
Though her mind might want to recite an encyclopedia of wrongs that she has suffered, Peter says it's best for her to be a loving, compliant wife, not complaining, not reciting scripture to her unbelieving husband in her own defense, but rather be respectful in the times of hardship and try to win her husband to Christ by her silent submission to his demands. Verse 1b, that they might be one without a word, chapter 3, verse 1, by the behavior of their wives. Now, that is a very, very difficult kind of attitude to possess, a very difficult kind of behavior to achieve. That kind of godly response is almost impossible to possess unless they understand that they're at war. They're in a spiritual war. And being at war, they need a leader. They need an example. So they need help or inspiration and guidance to be able to ensure that the kind of trial that Peter's pointing out to them in verse 18, that they remember, he says, the example of Christ. Verse 18, Christ also died for sins. Maybe even a better translation, Christ also suffered for sins once for all. The best example in times of great temptation to return evil for evil, as we heard even this morning, in any situation is the example of the Lord Jesus Christ who saved them by doing the exact same thing Peter's calling them to do. And then from verses 18 all the way to our passage today, Peter attempts to portray Christ as this grand example of righteous suffering. The just one, verse 18b, who died, and he died for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. This isn't the first time, by the way, that Peter is focused on the Lord Jesus as the suffering one. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 11, he speaks of Christ predicting his own sufferings through the prophets. Chapter 2, verse 21, he challenges them again to follow in Christ's example of suffering in righteousness. And please note that his picture of suffering, Christ, is not portrayed as the one crushed, whom the enemy thwarted. He's, he's not presenting Christ like that at all, but rather Peter paints the suffering of Christ as victorious. Yes, he, he suffered, but he was also vindicated. Verse 22, which we inadvertently skipped over our last time in the study when we were talking about pro proclamation of Christ to the saints who are now in prison, but I want to address that verse now, verse 22 of chapter 3. It tells us of his vindication with these words, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. That's a powerful verse. This Jesus who seemed to had suffered in the hands of unrighteous men and women who had suffered ridicule and slander and betrayal and brutality was now over every authority in the entire universe. Though he submitted to earthly authorities while he was on earth, even though authorities accused him of wrongly and sentenced him to die, now he rules victorious over all authorities and powers. He stooped, as they say, to conquer. He stooped to conquer. This is exactly the same picture that we see in Isaiah chapter 53 as the prophet talks of the Messiah, the one who was to come as the suffering one. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, 
for that the transgression of many people striking was due to him, so his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. The idea there being that this Christ, all of that, all of that was necessary to understand for the readers who were suffering in first century Asia Minor, and just so we can come to verse 4 and understand what it means with verse 1 of chapter 4, therefore, 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 because of everything that I just said is true, therefore, because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has given us the example of submitting to even the most hideous earthly rulers without sin and now reigns triumphant without rival and is completely vindicated because of that, verse 1, Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. Military terminology here. Arm yourselves in this war with that same purpose. Does that make sense? In this war with that same purpose. And we're going to look at what that means in just a moment. But before we do that, let me just consider this strategy first. When Peter says that Jesus has suffered in the flesh, he is saying that Jesus, the one who's God, very God, while walking on earth, suffered as a man. He was a man. He was as much God as he was man. He had flesh, meaning he lived as a human. He was vulnerable to temptation. When whips tore his back, he was vulnerable enough as a man to be tempted to destroy both the executioner and his torturing device with a wink of his eye, and he could have. When Satan tempted Christ in the wilderness, he was vulnerable enough as a man to want what was offered him or else there was no temptation at all. When the religious leaders who said that they knew the entire will of God accused Jesus of blasphemy and doing the works of Satan, he could have, in his humanness, humiliated them in the eyes of everyone by watching and accusing his divine attributors with one fell swoop and just decimating them like children to the release of his power. He could have he could have gone before them and made them but mush, but he did not do so. His flesh could have done these things, but he didn't. Why? He chose to suffer. Why? To provide an example for us. The author of Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Therefore, Jesus Christ suffered. If you don't think you're going to suffer, Jesus Christ suffered. If you don't think you're going to die, Jesus Christ died. And yet, if you feel like you're going to be resurrected because of your faith, that resurrection is true as well. Jesus suffered in his flesh. The phrase, in his flesh, sometimes has been understood to mostly or solely just focus on the cross, where he suffered and died, and clearly that is the idea of suffering there. But even more than the cross, in addition to the cross, Jesus suffered at the hands of those who rejected him. It wasn't only the nails that drove into his hands that hurt him, but the accusations and the rejection of his message that made him suffer as well. So Jesus here in 1 Peter is the example of the ultimate warrior. He is the ultimate warrior. He, he, they are in war. They are armed for this war. And Jesus is the one who's already gone before them and paved the way for them in terms of how they're to survive this war. He is the peaceful warrior. He is the one sent by God who has heroically given us the greatest example of humility ever seen on the face of the earth. He is the one who died for his friends, though he was the son of God. 
He is the model. He is the pioneer. He is the way shower. And because this whole section revolves around the suffering of Christ and our response to it within a military connotation, we see here that he is the ultimate warrior, the perfect leader, the courageous commander of his people. And you know why that's important? Because when you're at war, you need a hero to follow. Audie Murphy, at 18 years of age, was one of the most famous decorated American combat soldiers of World War II. He was awarded every U.S. military combat award for his valor that could be given to a U.S. Army man, excuse me, decorated by France and Belgium. He was presented the Medal of Honor for his defensive actions against German troops January 26, 1945. During an hour-long siege, he stood alone on a burning tank destroyer firing a machine gun, attacking German shoulders and tanks. He was wounded. He was out of ammunition. Murphy climbed off the tank, refused medical attention, and led his men on a successful counter-assault where Murphy ended up personally killing or wounding 50 Nazis while standing alone on the burning tank. And by the way, Audie Murphy was five foot five and weighed 110 pounds. He was the original Captain America. <laughs> Puny in the eyes of the world, he was nevertheless mighty in the eyes of his country. This one man was the inspiration for countless other young men all around the world to fight and to have courage for freedom at impossible odds. Listen, if Audie Murphy, as a teenager, could be considered to be one of the greatest warriors of all time, how much more the one who made all things the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Christ suffered in the flesh for us, not only to bring us to God, but also to give us an example to follow. So Peter says the first way to prepare yourself for spiritual war is to consider the example of the ultimate warrior himself, Jesus Christ, what he did and why he did it. There is a second way to prepare yourself, and we've already kind of hinted at that, only that not only should you consider the ultimate warrior, but also you should consider the ultimate weapon. Consider the ultimate weapon. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean, consider the ultimate weapon? Look again at verse 1. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same purpose. Do you see that? Arm yourself. Arm yourself. It's an aorist middle imperative it's something that you have to do by yourself, for yourself. It's a Greek word that was used of a Greek soldier putting on armor and taking his weapons. The noun of the same root word was used as a heavy-armed foot soldier who carried a pike and a large shield. The word was used of heavy-armed as against light-armed troops. Peter could have used the latter word, but he, the Holy Spirit inspired him to select the former word. He is saying this. Peter is saying that the Christian needs to possess the heaviest armor he and she can get, the kind of armor that can withstand the attacks of the enemy of his soul. The Christian needs to be armed to the hilt if he or she is to engage in war. They need to bring out the big guns for this mission. Now, this is not surprising to us because as we've been going over this book, Life and Christian life is often compared to the life of a warrior in the whole of the New Testament. 
Romans 13, 12, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. As we heard the choir singing even today of Ephesians 5, putting on the armor of God. 2 Corinthians 6, 7, Paul speaks of weapons of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 10, 4, he adds that the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, the hope of salvation. You know the passage in Ephesians 6. I won't give it to you right now, but verses 11 through 17, go through everything, what you should wear in your feet, how to protect yourself, your head, your, your arms, your chest. Everything is about this armor of God and this military usage and connotation of the Christian life. So we're not surprised that Peter, as well as Paul, would find this connection between the Christian life and the life of a warrior. The Christian life and the life of a warrior, if you want to be like a warrior, you have to do those things that a warrior would do. Side point real quick, when I was pursuing acting as a young man, I wanted to play a lot of military roles, and I was offered a lot of things to do like that. And one of the reasons why is because I I shaved my head at the time. That meant something, because now I basically have the same thing. And I would, uh, (laughs) but at the time, it was like a drastic move. You're doing what? And I had a uniform, and I uh, borrowed the uniform, actually, from Dean Richardson, who was a member of Grace Church. And six years later, I felt bad about not giving it back to him. So I called him up, and he led me to the Lord. That's just a side point of what military meant to me. But also, I found out what did you do at camp to train to be a soldier, and so I did the same military workout and ran the same distances because I just wanted to look like I was in the Army. I just wanted to look like a Marine, and I wasn't even going into battle, but I was willing to take on the brunt of whatever I had to do to resemble that kind of person. So much more for the Christian life. If we are in a war and we know what it is that we should do, wouldn't we also pursue that kind of endeavor? In 2 Timothy 2.3, Paul's very explicit when he says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. But here in 1 Peter 4, the fact that Peter speaks of this arming ourselves with a military inference indicates that you're going to have to have real discipline. You're going to have to have real discipline and real grit to live the Christian life, particularly in view of suffering and the suffering that believers encounter, the kind of righteous suffering that we go about. And it gets very, very specific in this. When this weapon we're to arm ourselves with, look again at verse 1. He says, arm yourself with the same purpose. Arm yourself, this is the weaponry, with the same purpose. It's a very interesting word because it can also be translated mind Arm yourself with the same mind. In the Greek, it speaks of the content of mental processing thought, knowledge, insight. It's what Hebrews 4.12 speaks of when it says in the mind. Originally, it denoted this just act of thought, and it came to denote the result of thought, realization, insight, disposition. So what the word is talking about, what it is that you're to arm yourself with, is a resolve that is expressed in determinative action. Does that make sense? To be resolved, and it results in a determined action. So Peter then is saying that we're to arm ourselves with the greatest weapon we can muster up in the time of spiritual war, and the greatest weapon in this context is to have the same purpose, to same purpose, thought or knowledge or insight, to have the same purpose. Same as what, you might be thinking? We'll begin the sentence again. Since Christ 
has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind, thought, knowledge, insight that he possessed when he suffered. That's your greatest weapon. That's our greatest weapon. To have the same thought towards unjust suffering that the Lord Jesus Christ has will cause us to react toward the suffering in, he, in the same way that he did. That is your greatest weapon. That is your armor. That is your mind. So which begs us the question, of course, what was Jesus' mindset towards unjust suffering? How did, if we had to have that same mind, what was his mind? If we were to have his same purpose, then what was his purpose or thought or minds toward it, right? It could be his steadfast hope for a vindication, as chapter 3 speaks of. It could be his commitment to live in such a way that he might bring sinners to God. It could be many of the themes that Peter has spoken of thus far in the book, but I believe the clearest indication of what Peter is speaking of here is seen in chapter 2, verse 23, when he says, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept, and here's the word, entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Entrusting himself. This is Christ's purpose, the principle that guided him. And it's seen in the word entrusting. It's paradidomi. It's the imperfect expressing the ongoing activity that characterized the life of our Savior and ministry, especially during the time of his passion. If you have a legacy standard Bible, it says that Jesus entrusted himself, but the Greek text has no object, so scholars debate whether Jesus entrusted himself or to his cause or his passion or, or even to the fate of his enemies. What was he entrusting himself to? He knew that God would judge righteously on the last day. I'm entrusting you, Father, with that judgment. I'm entrusting you, Father, that you, will vindict that you will vindicate me and punish the enemies if they refuse to repent. It's the same idea we see in Luke 23, 46, Jesus crying out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's my purpose, to please you. So what Peter is saying here is this, the Christian's greatest weapon against temptation and knowing it's not enough, but I have to make sure you know it first, is to give in, against giving in to the sin of resisting earthly authorities is to arm themselves with the same mindset of Jesus Christ who kept handing over each and every element of his life to the Father for he knew not only it would please him, but also that he would vindicate him at the end of his life. It's so precious and so important. Over and over and over, the believer, knowing this, still refuses this greatest weapon. They, they possess the very mindset of Jesus Christ, the mindset that's even revealed in the Scriptures. We have what we need. We have the ultimate hero. We have the weapon, but we keep it in our holster. A few years ago, there was a series of informal interviews conducted with thousands of American combat soldiers during World War II by an Army historian. And these interviews revealed that 75% of soldiers never fired their weapons during combat. 75% never fired their weapons. Though they were equipped, they, they were trained, they never took aim, and they never pulled the trigger. In recent years, the interviewer, Marshall, and his research methods have been called into question, but the basic conclusion is that the majority of soldiers will not return fire during combat if left to their own devices. 
that has been verified and evidenced in accounts from the Civil War, World War I, the Falklands War. It is the common thread. Left to themselves, they would allow themselves to die. Lift your own devices. Left to your own devices, the Christian, when being reviled, when being threatened, when being falsely accused, will return the accusation. They will return the accusation back to those who are going against them rather than rising up and allowing themselves to stare straight into the accusation and to respond in a godly way. When being mocked, they will verbally respond in like kind. But Peter says, and I know it's natural. It's so natural, it almost is dumbfounding. Peter says, when you do that, you will suffer for sin and you will forfeit blessing, and you will reap the consequences. That's not the kind of suffering I want you to go through. I don't want you to go through the suffering because you're attacked and you attack back. I know it doesn't make sense on a human level. This is a completely spiritual, supernatural event that's taken place in the believer's life. How could you respond that way? Well, he says, this is how you can respond this way. You have an ultimate ultimate warrior before you that is your model. And if you would arm yourself with the same purpose that he had when he suffered, not only would you see him as the one who was vindicated, he is now the risen Lord. He is the one who is over all people at all times, whether by their knee forced or by their knee willing. They would be able to be equipped with the most powerful weapon against their own sin imaginable, the mind of Christ whether he would give over every situation to God, that's the ultimate weapon. And you need to believe that, and you need to allow yourself to understand that, and you need to sit there and go, Lord Jesus, how can I honor you in my life? How can I honor you in going against the tide of oppression and the tide of ridicule is by having that mind of Christ. I want to follow in his steps. There's one more strategy left here in this section. Not only are we to consider the ultimate warrior and the ultimate weapon, but also, lastly, Peter says, consider the ultimate warfare. Consider the ultimate warfare. And look with me in verse 2. So as to no longer live the rest of the time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. This is the entire battle plan, if you will. This is how you play war with the world. And it's decided up front by you and I by deciding which side you're on. Which side are you on? You're either going to live the rest of your time in your flesh, meaning your body while you're alive on the earth. You're going to either live the rest of the time in your body for the lust of men or for the will of God. And you have to make up your mind. You have to make up your mind what you're going to do. You're either going to have the greatest warrior as your example who bled and died and suffered for you, and the most powerful weaponry that the entire world at your defense and allow yourself to act and believe as Jesus did, so knowing that the Father is in control of every single act, so you need to now make up your mind which side of the fence you're on. It's spiritual warfare. You need to decide. It's black and white. There's no gray. Your spiritual war is against the lust of men which means your battle is against the things that every man or woman wants. What they lust for, it's what you lust for. John, 1 John 2 says it this way, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the sinful pride of life, these are not from the Father, but they're from the world. What does that mean? 
That means that when you're dominated by the thought of getting what you don't have, getting what you don't, whether it be your eyes seeing every materialistic piece of property you think you deserve, or your flesh, your appetites, meaning your hungers and affections that don't belong to you, or your pride, which is so profound, your attitudes, meaning your desire for respect, your desire for acknowledgement or fame or, or whatever it might be that you're driven, then you can be 100% sure if that's you that you are dominated by desires that do not come from God. They are not from the Father. They are from the world. You're dominated. You're dominated by wanting what you want even if God has not determined that you should have them. That's living for the lust of men. That's what the unsaved man and woman does. That's what they want, and that's what men that are going to hell desire. When you desire the same things that the damned desire, then you are living for the lust of men. And Peter says that's not a part of the Christian life. That has nothing to do with the Christian life. Christian warfare opposes the lust of men. It no longer lives for that kind of life. It opposes itself when it wants those things. I am against me. I refuse to give in to me. It says no longer my soul, no longer my wretched heart. No longer can I continue to live my life wanting what I've always wanted. It's time to live the rest of my life for the will of God. And mark it there. Mark it there. When he says in verse 2, the rest of the time, he's saying clearly, whatever time you have left, whether it be a decade or an hour, you have determined in your heart that you will live for what God wants, what God wills, what God purposes, what God determines is right. Now, if you're like me, you might say to yourself, how do you do that? How do you do that? How can I resist temptation to defend myself from ill treatment from my boss? How can I resist the temptation to defend myself from total manipulation of the government? How can I resist the temptation to defend myself from that man or woman that I live with when they continually throw false accusations at me and malign me and purposely try to wound me? How do you do that? We'll look back at verse 1 at a phrase that I've left out till now that explains how you do that. See where it says in verse 1b, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Do you see that? If you're like me, you're thinking, what does that mean? He's not speaking about Christ here because Jesus was sinless. He never sinned in thought or deed in his entire life. So it can't be said of him that he had ceased from sin. So what does it mean that he who suffers ceases from sin? Can a Christian cease from sin? Is this some kind of second level of sanctification that some have taught in the past, like a second step of grace? Is this implying that somehow physical suffering in the body can purify the sufferer even from ever having sinned again? Is this what he's saying? No, Peter is saying... You need to arm yourself in this war with the same philosophy of life that dominated our Lord's life because when you do that, when you do that, you will then find yourself choosing to suffer in your flesh because he did, 
because he did. You want to be like the savior, the ultimate warrior. And once you suffer for the sake of righteousness, then you have broken the power of sin. You have ceased from it. That doesn't mean you'll never sin again. That does not mean that you don't ever sin again. But it does mean that once you align yourself with your Lord, so much so that you suffer in his same mindset, and you entrust your life and consequences and results to God, then you are no longer living a life dominated by sin. Commentator Hebert says it this way, He who in loyalty to Christ and in his power has steadfastly endured persecution rather than join in the wicked practices of the pagan world has demonstrated that the pursuit of sin in his life has ended, end quote. And you know what? It's hard. That's really hard, but it's right. And God does not give us a burden that we cannot bear through him. There are two reasons Christians suffer. Number one, deserved suffering for sin. And number two, undeserved suffering for righteousness. We suffer because we sin, and we suffer because we refuse to sin. And God designs blessing for us for for both reasons. One, If we sin, God brings discipline into our lives. Is that not right? That's what we read in the book of Hebrews. His design for discipline is what? Restoration. Restoration, not punishment. He disciplines those he loves. If you are suffering for your sin, it's a sign of his love because he's disciplining you. And sometimes he even disciplines his children by taking their lives, like Ananias and Sapphira. And you might not think, uh, well, that's not a very loving gesture, but it's It is a loving gesture. It's not punishment. He wasn't punishing them. Jesus Christ has already taken the punishment for our sin, so God does not punish us for our sin. If we confess our sin, God converts discipline into blessing. God makes us disciplined and then blesses us even when we sin against him. Whether we enjoy God's blessing for our lives depends on our acceptance of God's correction by faith. And you know what? God also blesses us in our undeserved suffering as well. And this is what Peter is driving at. This is a major argument of 1 Peter. When you take in mind and the mind of Christ, when you take the mind of Christ on, when you engage in the spiritual war looking to him as the ultimate warrior and you appropriate the ultimate weaponry afforded you through faith to see every incident in your life through his eyes, Then when the battle lines are drawn and you know which side you're on, you choose to suffer and you no longer live for yourself, but you start the wonderfully painful process of living for the will of God. And the sin that once dominated your life through your fable attempt to protect yourself from any wrongdoing is rendered powerless over you. You start to win the war. You start to win the war for God. Someone out there is saying, but Tom, I do love Christ. And I do want to live for the will of God, but I am still wrestling in my flesh for the lust of men. What do I do? Well, listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon, an answer and a prayer that will end our time this morning. Spurgeon says, I pray the Holy Spirit to help me to lead you right away to Calvary, where Jesus hangs bleeding on the cross. Will you not sit down with me upon the ground and look up and see him die? 
Mark the precious blood flowing from his many wounds and hear him cry, I thirst. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look unto him, oh, that you would look as I do. I am looking unto Jesus and trusting myself entirely with him to save me. And I feel in my heart that he has saved me. Now I cannot live as I once lived. I cannot sin as I once sinned. I must have done, be done with sin if I have indeed trusted in Christ. Do you not also feel the same? I am sure that if you do, now look to him and live by him, and you will not want to have your sins spared you even until the end of this year, but you will say, no, take them out, hang them up, let them all be put away forever. There is no darling sin that I would keep back. Let them all die, for no longer I would seek to find perilous and poisonous enjoyment in them, but my delight shall consist in the seeking to the holy and enduring and to glorify Jesus Christ. And then he says, if you have received the new life into your soul, then I know you will say, no longer will I abide in sin. That is our prayer. That is going to be the prayer that he's also going to unpack next week when we look at verses 3 and following. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have worked out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, maligning you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So come back next week, and we'll go through all of that together. Pray with me. Father, we are in a war. Some of us sense it greatly every hour of the day. This war wakes us up in the middle of the night. This war continues in our heart and in our mind as a way we see this world falling and corrupting and the temptation to corrupt along with it is there. Yet, Father, I know that this world is fading away, more and more evident every single week that we see war, we see distortion of truth, we see corruption, we see all things that Remind us that this world is going to go away, that you are coming back, Lord Jesus, and your reign will be forever. And so we wait in the anticipation of that rapture. We wait knowing that as we wait, we wait as children obedient to our parents, to our Father in heaven, to our brother Jesus, to the Spirit of God. And so now, Lord, fill us with that expectant hope and allow us not to dwell on the sins of our past the way we once were, but instead to see ourselves in battle, focusing on the ultimate warrior, using the ultimate weaponry, and allowing ourselves to live for the rest of the time in our flesh for the will of God. Bless us. Allow us to take these teachings into our heart and to process them so that we might walk anew. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.